150 individual prayers of all shapes and stripes, prayers of lament, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers that we'll see today of expressing joy for the coming kingdom. Those are called royal psalms. These psalms, these 150 prayers, are there to help marinate our hearts and teach us what it means to give the Lord every one of our emotions. The psalms cover the full range of human emotions. In fact, if you go today to a Benedictine monastery, you'll find that Benedictines pray all 150 psalms every single week. Anglicans, for many, many years, have prayed the psalms, all 150, every, every month. We're praying them throughout the summer, and we're doing so because we want the psalms to shape and mold your heart. And one of the things that's helpful is to read what happens whenever you begin to practice the art of reading the psalms. Let me give you one such example. This comes from a, a woman who writes not long after she graduated from college. One of the key things that praying the Psalms has sensitized me to is how much our individualistic and technological society works against any inclinations we may have to engage in intimate, gut-level dialogue with God. Having spent more than half my life in school being fed information and four years of college learning specifically how to use motivational language to manipulate people, I was a media marketing major, she says. Learning that the Psalms have been used throughout the church's history as tools to train the church in the conversion of language. And it hit me with revolutionary force that it makes sense in our print-oriented society that the Word of God should come to be seen as a static collection of recorded words rather than as a dynamic oral dialogue in which God continues to speak and we continue to answer. It has been exciting to discover that using the Psalms to pray connects us with the struggles and responses of all of God's people throughout history. And how, are you listening? In our fast-paced and noisy society, praying the Psalms can slow us down and cause us to tune into the softer rhythms of nature, which are often snuffed out in our frenzy of activity. In my experience of praying the Psalms, she writes, I have felt as if I have been suddenly given the ears to hear the dialogue that has been going on between man and God and to find myself as a participant in the conversation. I have found that praying the Psalms has taken the focus of my prayer off my needs and ability to do and to put it onto God's power and authority. I have come to see the Psalms as a guide to reciting the particularities of the battle God is waging against the enemies of his people, namely that of sin and death. So would you please give your ear to Avery as she reads Psalm 72, and if you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and may as long as the moon throughout all generation. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. 
May the desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may the gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word? And now would you use your word to change our hearts? Through Psalm 72, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're a note taker, take out your bulletin and you're going to write down three headings for the sermon. Here they are. I'm just going to give them to you and then we're going to walk through them in the moments we have together. The king's final words, the words of the king, and the words eternal reign. That's what the psalm is about. It's about the king's final words, it's about the word of the king, and it's about the king's, or the word's, eternal reign. Now, if you have your Bibles before you, and I hope you do, or you have your bulletin, look with me at the psalm. Notice that it says, at the very beginning in the title, it says, of whom? Class? Of Solomon. It says, of Solomon. Most of the time in the Psalms, whenever it says of someone, it means that that person is the author. This is a Psalm of Solomon that he wrote. But notice what happens at verse 20. Look down at the very end. What does it say? Eyes on the text. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, it seems to suggest that the prayers of David, which are the prayers most of the Psalms comprised of books 1 and books 2, which are Psalms 1 to 41, that's book 1 of the Psalms, and 42 all the way to this Psalm, Psalm 72, which is book 2, are comprised of David. And indeed, that is the case. Most of them are comprised of David. And scholars actually are quite torn about this heading of Solomon. What exactly does that mean? And what most scholars believe is that this is a psalm written by David to his son Solomon on the eve or just before Solomon begins his rule as the king of Israel. Remember, there were three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And you heard Chris earlier read some of David's last words where David prays for his son Solomon, that he may be able to rule and reign over his people in a way that glorified and honored God. Now, I To help you get into the text of Psalm 72, I want you to imagine with me an aging King David 
sitting down and his young son, who has just been crowned king before him, and next to him is his mother, Bathsheba. Remember, Bathsheba had urged King David to anoint Solomon as the next king. Remember, there had just been a coup that had been foiled. Adonijah had been pushed aside. And at the bequest of Bathsheba, at the prophetic word of the prophet Nathan, and of David's own recollection of God's word and promise to him, God then anoints Solomon, his son, as the king. And here David is praying a psalm. It's as if he took out a pen and he said, this is what I want to be true of your reign, son. And all throughout church history, God's people have read this psalm as, yes, pointing to the rule and reign of Solomon in Israel, but through the rule and reign of Solomon, pointing to the greater rule of David's greater son, not Solomon, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, when James Montgomery, who wrote the worship song, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, read this psalm, he wrote down lyrics to what would become the famous him, hail to the Lord's anointed. So these are quite literally the, the king's final words, the king's final words to his son Solomon. And kings in the ancient Near East, remember, weren't just people that you elect to be president. They were appointed by God himself. Do you remember, you guys remember in Samuel, the life of Samuel, right? At the end of, at the, end of the book of Judges, remember God set judges over the people of God. And toward the very end of the cycle of judges, there was a judge named Samuel. And when Samuel was coming, his, his old age was upon him. He was getting old. He was about to have to retire. Um, Israel became very worried and anxious about what was going to happen to them after Samuel died. And they looked around and they said, we do not want, we do not want another cyclical judge. We want a king who will be here for us. And they saw the oppression from the outside, and they said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And when they asked for a king to be like the other nations, what they asked for was actually a sinful request. There's nothing wrong with having a king. But it was the Lord himself who set him up, himself up as the king of all of Israel. And when they asked for a king to be put over them, what they were saying is, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We want a physical embodiment of a man to deliver us from the oppression of our enemies. And surprisingly, what did God do for them? He gave them the desire of their hearts. He gave them Saul, who was an absolute disaster. Because a king in the ancient Near East wasn't just an official of a country. He was quite literally the savior of the people. He delivered them from the oppression of their enemies. He rescued them from the sword of their oppressors. And here, David says to his son Saul, I mean Solomon, Solomon, will you rule with equity? Would you rule with might? Would you rule for the poor? And in seeing the king's final words, David shows us the very words of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, when Israel asked for a king, what was their problem? Their problem was the same problem that you and I have. That we want something tangible, we want something real, we want something 
physical to hang on to to point to our security and to our hope. Listen, how many of you saw Thursday night's debate? A lot of us watch these political debates with great anticipation because we think, well, this next four years will be what we need for our country. And as great as these debates may be, as entertaining as they may be, of course, they're just a shadow and an echo of the true kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ who will come to reign with us in equity, who will come to reign with us forever. And this is what this psalm is talking about. The problem with the Israelites, and the same problem that we have, is that, friends, we continue to run to our self-saving strategies to find life. The greatest um, exposure of this came not in a sermon, but came in a commencement address at Harvard University in 1978 by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn had suffered excruciatingly in the camps of Russia. He became a fine writer through his experience of suffering in the Soviet concentration camps. And he stood at Harvard University in June of 1978, and he gave a, he gave a commencement speech, felt like a sermon, called A World Split Apart. And this is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn had to say. He said, the tilt of freedom toward evil has come about very gradually in the West, but it evidently stems from a humanistic and benevolent concept according to which man, who is the master of his own world, does not bear any evil within himself. And all the defects of life are caused by misguided social systems, which must therefore be corrected. Yet strangely enough, though the best social conditions have been achieved in the West, there still remains a great deal of crime, maybe even more than ever. Alexander Solzhenitsyn stood before the thousands of people at the commencement address in Cambridge, Massachusetts, many years ago. And as an Easterner, that is, somebody who lived on the other side of the world. He said, the problem with the West is that we from the East look at the West, and it just is not that appealing. Because you have replaced a great sense of your hope, not in your faith of what God has called mankind to be, but in your materialism to be the chief value that you judge yourself by. Listen, every single one of us, self-included, thinks that the primary security in our life comes maybe in a secondary or tertiary sense, but in some way we think, you know what, what we really need is material possessions. That's why all these debates about social security reform are interesting to you, because you're worried about how you're going to have material possessions when you retire. Listen, the Lord did not promise us material prosperity, but the Lord did promise us himself. So if we're going to see the final words of the king, of King David given to his son Solomon, and through that, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, let's get a picture of what this royal psalm actually says to us. What are the words of the king to us? Lower your eyes to the text. The words of the king, verses 1 down through verse 14. The words of the king, the word in Hebrew for word is dabar. It's used almost 400 times in the Old Testament. It means his power and his authority. And though 
Thus saith the Lord is not written in this psalm. Nevertheless, these are the debar of God. They are the words of the Lord because they are communicating to us his precise power, personality, and qualities. And what are they? First, he gives us a word of justice and of mercy. In verses 1 to 4, it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and not the poor, but your poor with justice. The first thing that we see, Jesus Christ cares for his people. He cares for the poor. Sometimes in the evangelical church, we get a little torn about whether we should evangelize or whether we should do works of ministry. Yes, works of mercy. Yes, to both of those. You should evangelize your lights out. And you should also give away a lot of money in accountable, generous, and benevolent ways. And listen, there are some of you in this congregation that, um, that have come to me, and I know that, you're, that it's a hard time. And you're struggling financially. And there are seasons of you that will go through times where you're struggling financially. Do you know what happens when you um, join the church? You bear burdens together. And we have all been accepted and loved by Jesus Christ if you by faith trust in him. So our value does not depend upon who gives and who doesn't give and how much money you have or where you live. It comes by bearing the common bond of being united in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus looks over you, when the Father looks over you through the Son, he sees you as infinitely wealthy because you are covered and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So therefore, it's okay if you're going through a really difficult time financially. It is okay it is even, dare I say it, right for you to let people know in the church so that we can help meet your needs the best that we possibly can. You have not because you ask not. And we want to be a church that's generous in the way that we support those who are going through difficult financial times. And there are ways to do that that, are, that hold us accountable, that help us learn to budget well. But listen, the first call of the king is to take care of the poor. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Where do you see that being done today? It should principally be done in Christ's body, in the church. And it's such a great delight to be able to do that together. God is a God of mercy and of justice. Not only is he a God of mercy and justice, but secondly, God is a God of holiness and refreshment. Look down at verses 5 to 9. May they fear you while the sun endures. In other words, may they be in awe of your holiness. May they tremble at your presence. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. How does a yard receive rain? passively. There's no blade of grass that's crying out to the heavens, fall on me, fall on me. And just like long before you recognized your need for your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ is raining down his grace on you to open your heart to believe the gospel, 
That is the good news. And he creates for us a picture of the kingdom in his church. In this church. To be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a place of refreshment and of holiness. This is why, for example, this is why setup is so important. We don't really care so much that this church looks perfect. It's in a gymnasium. The setup team does a fantastic job. But it is why we want to make setup as easy as possible. Because the chief thing we want you to leave worship with every week is not 17 things of how to be a better dad or how to be a better person. It's walking out with 17 different things, indeed maybe 20 different verses, of how Jesus is beautiful to you and how he rains down on you his mercy and justice and grace because he loves you right where you are, as tired as some of you are. He loves you and he is with you and he knows the anxiety of your heart and he sings over you. You are not alone. And he gives each other the church to be a picture of his coming kingdom. His word is a word of holiness. His word is a word of refreshment. In his days, may the righteous flourish. May peace abound till the moon be no more. It's a picture of one day when Christ comes again to reign for all eternity. When there will be no need for the sun nor the moon, because Christ himself will be the one who is in the center, the blazing center, giving light to everything. He is our coming king. God also gives us a word of power and of worship. Look at verse 8. We have dominion from, may he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is almost years before This is almost a direct quote from what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 9, where he says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteousness and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Long before Zechariah lived, David saw it. And he said, O Solomon, would you please rule? God, would you grant my son the rule and reign from sea to sea as a picture of your one day beautiful rule over all the earth? Do you know what a legacy investment is? I was talking to a guy when I was on vacation last week about legacy investments. A legacy investment is where you invest money into some project and you're never going to see a return on that money. You won't see a return on that money. But your sons or your grandsons, daughters or granddaughters, might. That's what's, a, that's what's called a legacy investment. And Psalm 72 is a legacy investment. That David is writing this investment for his son, knowing that he will never, Solomon never saw the fruition of this. But we get to. 
Because we see it in the personal work of Jesus, who has come for us, who has given us these good words to us, these words of holiness and refreshment, these words of justice and mercy, these words of power and of worship, these words down in verse 12 through 14 of compassion and of rescue. We get to experience this, friends. Jesus loves you more than you could ever dream. And he is with you. And some of you have um, obstacles. You have, um, you doubt the legitimacy of the gospel because you go to these churches and you just hear people talk about how to be a better person and it feels like Dr. Phil with some songs in a church building. But the truth of the matter is, if you're in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. This is a picture of your future. Please hear me. It's a picture of your Lord ruling and reigning over you with equity and justice. And you have a picture of that now in the way that our little church plant together loves each other well. And we go into Owasso in Northeast Oklahoma and Verdigris and Bartlesville and Grove as those who are not defined by our material prosperity, but are defined chiefly because Jesus Christ covers us with his righteousness. And we have been freed from dominion of our sin. And we have the ability now in the Holy Spirit to not sin because of his work in our life. And as we as a church begin to embody these things, we become a church of justice and mercy. We become a church of refreshment and of holiness. We become a church of power and of worship. We become a church where we talk about the Lord's compassion. We tell stories of rescue. We become the embodied body of Jesus Christ in our community for the world. So when you read the Psalms and you find a royal psalm, yes, it's talking about Solomon, but it's through Solomon that you see a picture of your Savior. And where is your Savior now? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, your Savior is with you and among you in his people, even as he sits at the right hand of his Father interceding for you. We have the greatest privilege in all the world, greater than any government, greater than any other social organization. We have the great privilege of being the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. Are you? Do you see this as a picture of your future? where Jesus will rule and reign with perfect justice and righteousness, where you will see utter holiness and you will stand in awe of him, where you will be refreshed because you're finally turning your eyes away from your sin and you're seeing the beauty of your Savior who loves you, and who calls you a brother and a sister, who allows the Father to say to you, you are my child and I love you. Are you able to tell your story of rescue? To tell how you have been freed from oppression and violence? Because precious is your life in his sight. And the imperative of this passage is not implicit in the passage at all. That is the command. Because this psalm for us is like a beautiful art exhibit that you stand before and you just see descriptions of the kingdom. And you stand in awe of it 
And what it causes you to want to do is to move into action and worship him. And as many of us are in this room, that's the different application of this passage. When you stand before a beautiful art exhibit at the Gilcrease or the Philbrook, sometimes you're just moved. You're moved to go and change the world. You leave the theater after a wonderful movie, and you're moved because of the incredible message of the show you just saw. So also some psalms, like Psalm 72, present that to us. And David just shouts out and prays, long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. Verse 17, may his fame continue as long as the sun. May, the, may he be blessed among all nations. One day, every king, every queen will lick the dust in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, even the enemies that you have, even those things in your life that are bearing down on you, one day Jesus is going to take you and rescue you from every single one of those things. But until the day comes and you're freed from the oppression and the violence of those things, you know what you get? You get the comfort of his people. And you get the love or the fellowship that comes by the presence of Jesus in and through the people of God. So friends, the final words of the king show us the word of the king. Words of mercy and justice. Words of holiness and refreshment. Words of compassion and of rescue. And you see the words eternal reign. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. May the kings of the world come and lay down their gifts. You know it says in Isaiah 60 that the ships of Tarshish, the secular trade ships, will come and they will bring their goods to the new Jerusalem in honor and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of such an amazing, amazing community called the church. And it is our responsibility to move out into the world throughout all the diverse applications and express our vulnerability, express our concern over the oppression of our life, come to people with our struggles over our marriages, to bear burdens together, because we belong to the kingdom of the Lord, not of Solomon, not of the United States, not of the West, of the Lord himself, who sings over you his love. And, of course, the greatest word is the word himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and dwelt among us and bore all the burdens of sin that we bear, though he never sinned. He bore every one of your sins on the cross so that you and I might have life and we might rest in his finished work for us. Listen, at the very end of, of um, David's life, he calls all of Israel to covenant renewal. And at this point of covenant renewal, which you heard Chris read earlier, David calls them to three things. He calls them to repentance from their self-saving strategies. He calls them to new obedience in light of God's covenant commands. And he calls them to faith in the worship and the work of God. 
So as you come to the Lord's Supper this morning, would you come with those three things in your heart of covenant renewal, that you have heard the final words of the king, the promise of the coming kingdom. You've seen the words, words of mercy and justice, words of holiness and refreshment. You see them in this text. And you see that through Psalm 72, you see the true word who reigns eternally and forever. And he knows you and he loves you. Jesus Christ cares more for you than you could ever imagine. And he wants you to run to him now in faith. Would you do that as we prepare for the supper? Let's pray together. Father, throughout this service, as we retell of all that you've done, may we stand in awe and wonder of you. For you laid down your life for us. You covered us in your righteousness. And Lord, you've offered us the promise which was but a shadow to David, that one day you would rule and reign forever. And you show us that rule and reign in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Help those of us in this room who do not yet believe to believe and to know that there's no greater joy than to know that we are justified in your sight. Father, help those of us who've been Christians for many years to find refreshment in your word to know that you are a God of justice and mercy. You are a God of holiness and of refreshment. You are a God of power and worship. You are a God of compassion and of rescue. And so, Lord, we run to your table now to commune with you. In Jesus' name, amen.